Uh, I hope you picked up a, a copy of the uh, uh, sermon notes. I'd like to actually uh, begin putting the focus uh, on uh, the new year, and uh, not only this Sunday, but next Sunday as well. And if you have a copy of the notes, you notice the message is simply entitled, Don't Waste Your Life in 2020, Spend It on God. Let me begin by asking you a question. What would you say is the most valuable commodity in life? Interesting question. It could be answered in a lot of different ways. I would suggest that the most valuable commodity in life is time. Because you only have it once, and it's running out far too quickly. Uh, For example, the hours, uh, the days, the months of 2019 have been spent. They cannot be relived, cannot be retrieved. Someone said yesterday is a cashed check. Tomorrow is a promissory note. Today is cash in hand, so use it, invest it. So we're all faced with the question, how am I going to spend the time God gives me in 2020? Now, as a pastor, I have had the opportunity Uh, to be at the bedside of uh, many dying people. I see Brother Jim back there. Brother Jim, for years, was a chaplain with one of the hospice ministries, and I have no idea how many uh, uh, bedsides he's been at where uh, he saw that individual pass away in eternity. But I can tell you, in those many opportunities I've had to be in those situations, I have never once heard a person say, I wish I had spent more time in the office, or that I had spent more time acquiring money, or trying to enjoy more of the pleasures and thrills this world offers. I'll tell you what I have heard people say, I wish I'd spent more time with my family, or I wish I'd spent more time getting to know God and investing in His purposes. My appeal this morning is very, very simple. Don't waste your life in 2020. Spend it on God. Look at the first verses in your sermon notes. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. Be careful how you live. Not as fools but as those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity for doing good in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but try to understand what the Lord wants you to do. Would you circle the word, be careful, right at the very beginning of that passage, be careful how you live? The opposite of being careful is what? Being careless. In other words, don't be careless in the way you live. Think it through. Understand what the Lord wants you to do. And would you like to know what the Lord wants for your life 
in this new year? Well, to answer that question, we need to answer the four questions that you find in your sermon notes, and this will be the heart of the message today. Look at the first question. So as I'm going into 2020, or even this very day, what does God want? And the answer, my whole life. My whole life. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 13. Give yourselves completely to God. Why? Because you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Please circle the words whole body, whole body. It's very obvious. God is not satisfied with 10% of you. 50% or even 99%. He wants all of you. You know, a lot of people will say, you know, I have my sort of career life over here. And, you know, my uh, family life, of course, is here. And then, of course, I have my social life. I have my recreational life. Uh, There are some of you sitting here, you have your retirement life. And then over here, in a separate category, is my spiritual life as if God is satisfied with only one slice of the pie. No, God wants the whole pie, every bit of it. Now, let me explain what that means in just very practical terms. Your life, like everyone else's life, is multifaceted. And you must divide your time between diverse relationships responsibilities, and interest. That's just reality. That's inescapable. That's just living life. Now, what a Christian needs to realize is that he has been brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ, which is described in the Bible as actually being married to Christ. Therefore, Christ desires to be included in every area of your life, and excluded from none. A Christian is to bring Christ's presence into every relationship, every responsibility, every area of interest, and because He is Lord of your life, every one of those areas is to be brought in harmony to God's Word and to God's character. Christ's presence when it is acknowledged in your life, when it is submitted to in your life, when it is relied on in every area of your life, is the only thing that can bring unity in the midst of life's diversities, the only thing that can bring strength to confront life's challenges, the only thing that can bring peace in life's busyness and stresses. Bottom line, Jesus not only wants to be present in your life, He wants to be preeminent, and preeminent in every area of your life. Uh, You might remember this uh, past year, in many of our Lord's Supper services, uh, by design, I I focused on uh, just a a challenge that uh, God mightily used in my heart uh, at the beginning of last year, and so I I just sort of repeated it just about every Lord's Supper. 
And that is that Jesus desires no rival. There's to be no refusal of him and no retreat from what he's called us to do. That's bottom line it. No rival, no refusal, no retreat. That's what it means for him not only to be present but to be preeminent. Uh, Look at Matthew chapter 6 verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, uh, you will be devoted to one and despise the other. Uh, Underline that first phrase, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. Jesus is simply saying it's impossible to have two number one priorities in your life. So the real question is this, is Jesus Christ first place in your life? And in asking that, I'm saying, is he first place in every area of your life? Which again means I submit. I deliberately, willfully, thoughtfully, carefully submit every area of my life to God with the commitment to bring every area, again, in harmony to the truth I discover in God's Word and to bring it in harmony with God's revealed character. Uh, You know, it's amazing the excuses we give for not putting Christ first in our lives. Uh, Look at the excuses given in Luke 14, verses 18 through 20. It says, but they all began making excuses. One said, I have just bought a field and must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five pairs of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another one said, I now have a wife so I can't come. Now listen very, very carefully. Let's not make this complicated. There's absolutely nothing wrong with purchasing property. There's absolutely nothing wrong with buying oxen or today buying a a car. There's nothing wrong, of course, with taking a wife. Nothing wrong with any of those things as long as you surrender all those things to God. And you see them as instruments to serve God's purposes, God's glory. And you relate to those things, again, in harmony with God's Word. In Luke 14, think about this. All those things, all those things were opportunities to worship Christ. The surrender of the property, the surrender of the oxen, the surrender of the marriage for the honor and glory of God. But instead of seeing these as opportunities to worship Christ, for these individuals, they became what? Excuses. Not to follow Christ. So let me ask you, what excuse do you give for not putting God first? God, I'll I'll live for you, but, you know, first, let me finish high school or college. Or let me build my career first. Or let me first get married or, or... Maybe let me get these kids out of the house. Or let me first gain financial security. Let me first enjoy my retirement for a little while. You know, I'll let you in on a little secret. If you put God first, he'll take care of everything else. And again, there's nothing wrong with having a career, going to school like we've talked about uh, getting married or, or, or being in your retirement years. The issue, is, do you see those as areas to surrender to God? Opportunities to worship Him. 
opportunities to uh, utilize these things for God's purposes and glory. Uh, look at Proverbs 3, 6 there in your notes. Seek His will in all. Circle that word all. Seek His will in all you do, and He will show you which path to take. Now, this next verse is not in your notes, but you're all familiar with it, and it says it all on this point, Matthew 6, but seek first His kingdom. In other words, submitting to Him as King and Lord of your life. Seek first His righteousness, becoming like Him. So that's, that's the heart of life, surrendering to Him as Lord and then following Him to become like Him and to accomplish His plans and purposes for your life. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and what? And all these things. And in the context of things that Gentiles think, unbelief, all these things will be added to you. You won't have to worry about your basic provision. God will have your back as you seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. So what does God want? We have to begin there. He wants my whole life, withholding nothing from Him. The second question, okay, what will it take? And this is a word we probably need to hear a little bit more in the Christian life, discipline. Discipline. Now, please understand me. There's always a balance between uh, uh, God's power and, of course, human responsibility. We see this beautifully in Philippians 2 for, you know, work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation. Why? Because it is God who is what? At work in you. So, we are totally impotent apart from God. Uh, as Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. But reality is, I'm not apart from Christ. I've been united to Christ. I possess Christ. And He's promised, as I do surrender my life to Him and seek to obey Him and please Him, He will empower me to do so. And one of the things we see over and over in the Bible that is stressed is that God expects us to show discipline in our lives in terms of our relationship with Him. Look at 1 Timothy 4, 7. Discipline your what? Self. I mean, God's not going to do it for you. Again, God's going to give you grace. He's going to give you power. But this is our responsibility as believers. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So you ask, what is discipline? Discipline is simply doing what is difficult now to enjoy a benefit later. Doing something difficult now in order to enjoy a benefit later. For example, many people become disciplined about physical exercise. Why? Because of the health benefits. And that's good. Paul even acknowledges that there's profit in bodily exercise. But what if we became as serious about keeping spiritually fit as we do about keeping spirit, uh, physically fit? You know, I think of my own life. When, you know, many of you know my testimony, how my, prior coming to know Christ, my life to a large extent evolved around football. I'll never forget during those years, during my high school years, 
the discipline I put in that sport. I worked out 365 days a year. I did not miss a day. Two, three hours every day, during the season, off season. And why? To win some games, to get some accolades. But look at 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24, 27, as the Apostle Paul takes this uh, illustration of an athlete disciplining himself to win the crown to the Christian life. He said, he's, he's speaking to believers now, he says, so run to win. That's how you're to live the Christian life. Live it to win. Now, when he says win, it means to win for Jesus. And what does it mean to win for Jesus? It means to live for him in all circumstances, love like him in all relationships, look to him in all decisions in life, lean on him in all challenges in life. So he says, run to win, run to finish the course that God has laid out for you. God has a work for you to accomplish here on planet earth. So run to accomplish that. To go across that finish line, hearing those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You fulfilled your calling. You finished the work that I gave you here on earth uh, to do. So run to win. Then notice, all athletes are disciplined in their training. Why do they do it? They do it to win a prize that will fade away. But we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. You know, the, uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians 9. This is, he, he moves from chapter 9 into chapter 10, and he gives a beautiful example of what he's talking about and about what happens if you do not discipline yourself. If you do live life as a believer carelessly, giving no thought to it, not being deliberate in the decisions you make, submitting everything to God with the desire to bring everything in harmony to God's Word and God's character. So he's just talked about this fact that you're all to, you're to run to win. And, and like an athlete disciplines himself to win the prize, you're to discipline yourself. You, know, you don't become disqualified and you can finish the course God has laid out for you to hear those words, well done, and thou good and faithful servant. And then notice chapter 10, 4. See, that, that little word 4 connects what he's about to say to the end of chapter 9. He says, because I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers... Now, know, as I read this, and you might want to circle in your Bible, notice how many times he uses the word all. Notice. He said, our fathers, and very specifically, he's talking about the Israelites, and we're going to see where he's talking about when the Israelites were redeemed from Egypt, when he delivered them in the Exodus. And notice he says that our fathers were all under the cloud. Remember the cloud that led them by day. And all passed through the sea. Remember how they were delivered at the Red Sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud 
and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. So how many times? Five times. He said they all began the race. And they initially began well. But no, notice the tragic verse 5. The next verse. Nevertheless... With most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, that is an understatement. How many did get God's approval? Two men, Caleb and Joshua. The rest became disqualified from entering their rest in the promised land. Because they were careless, because they did not discipline them, themselves. And then notice the reasons. We I don't have time to go through all of this, but verse 7, they fell into idolatry, putting other things before God. And if you want to know a simple definition of sin, here it is, regarding anything more important than God. You know, we always try to put sin in very dark evil terms, and rightfully so, but realize probably the simplest way to define sin is just making anything more important than God, because He deserves to be on the throne of your heart, and not to have Him there is what? Evil rebellion. Verse 8, they fell into what? Immorality. And there's always a link there. You turn away from God being first place, you're going to be eaten up with your own selfish desires. It's going to lead you into sin. Verse 9, nor let us try the Lord. Talking about their unbelief. Verse 10, they grumbled. In other words, unwilling to submit to the sovereignty of God, thinking they knew better than God. And not understanding, hey, I think I can trust the one who loves me most. Don't you think he's going to know best? But instead, they, in their arrogance and pride, thought they knew better, and they railed against God. They grumbled. Now, to be very honest, they didn't typically grumble right at the face of God. Uh, They grumbled at God's instruments, at the leadership God placed in their lives, at the circumstances they confronted in life because all of those came from God to shape their lives, to mold them, to give them an opportunity to become more and more like God and to accomplish His purposes for their life. And then look at verse 11. Now, these things happen, why? To them as an example, an example for us, for us. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So, I, I just simply share that with you to see how important discipline is. And that's our responsibility. Andy Merritt has to make a decision to become very careful, to become very deliberate, to become very intentional about the way that I live my life. Yes, I realize I'm totally dependent upon God. Apart from Him, I can do nothing. And that's what even should drive me more quickly to get to God, realizing that because I'm so dependent, I'm desperate. And because I'm desperate, there's only one hope. That's God. Look at Hebrews 12.1 along with this. 
Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Circle the two words weight and the word sin. Weight and sin. There are two things you have to let go of in order not to waste your life. Now, you know what sin is. Sin is neglecting or disobeying God, or as we mentioned a moment ago, making something more important in your life than, than God. But what is a weight? And again, I just want to make this simple. A weight is something not necessarily wrong. It's just not necessary. You know, he's talking about in the context of running. In addition to football, I hated track. The only reason I ran track was because of football, uh, to help me there with my uh, speed and skills. But I ran competitive track from the third grade all the, way, all the way into college. I know Janet right there, you ran track all the way. She was a great track star at Auburn University. And you know, track athletes wear those little skimpy, lightweight uniforms, and they weigh nothing. I don't know if you've ever picked up a, wear, a pair of track shoes that we wear. It, it's, it, they're like light as a feather. Why? Because that runner doesn't want anything to impede him. He has, he has one goal, that is to win the race. So he wants to shed everything that would be unnecessary, that would just hold him down, weight him down, and not give him the best opportunity to have the best outcome and to have his best time. Uh, you know, many Christians, and that right here, what I'm about to say, if you really grasp this, could be something that would literally transform your life in 2020. If you got serious about this each and every day. Many Christians never get beyond asking this question. Here's where most Christians, this is the level they stay at. When they approach life and relationships and responsibilities and interesting, is this permissible? And that's, I mean, that should be asked. We don't want to do anything that's not permissible. That would be contrary to God's Word. That would be a transgression of God's Word. But out of my love for Christ and desire to follow Him, to become like Him, to accomplish His purposes, I need to go beyond that. The question should be not just, is this permissible? But is this profitable? Is this profitable to my Christian life? Even the Apostle Paul said, all things are lawful. Now, in the context he's talking about, he didn't mean every single thing is lawful. But in the context that he's talking about in this particular passage, he said, all things are lawful, but not all things are what? Profitable. And that word profitable that he uses in the Greek text it, it pictures a, a person on a journey. He's going from point A to point B. And that which is profitable is anything that's going to aid him in that journey to arrive at his desired destination. Anything unprofitable is anything that's going to impede him, anything that's going to slow him up. So can you imagine the difference that could be made in our lives if we live life every day that way. That we approached every decision, you know, 
not is this just permissible, but is this really profitable? Is it profitable? For most of us in the the sanctuary, it's not so much sin causing us to waste our lives, but a number of good things, lawful things that keep us from the best thing. And that's knowing and serving Jesus. Look at Luke 10, very familiar passage that, you're, that I think you all know of. Luke 10, verses 40 through 42. Martha was, look at that next word, distracted by her many tasks. And distracted from what? In the context of Jesus, who's sitting in her home right now. So Martha was distracted by her many tasks. Nothing wrong about the tasks she was doing But there's a time and place for everything. Right now, she's got Jesus in her home. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. But there is need of only one thing, and Mary has chosen the better part. And you remember what Mary did? She was at the feet of Jesus, listening to him. Again, all the tasks she was doing, they're necessary tasks. As long as those tasks are not distracting you so much from Jesus that you neglect the fact that his presence is with you. I mean, you can even use those tasks as an opportunity, what, to commune with Jesus as you wash your dishes, whatever you might do. I find one of my best prayer times is when I'm on the treadmill, to be very honest with you. That's a wonderful prayer time for me. So turn everything into an opportunity to to worship, to commune, to relate uh, to God. Uh, Notice again that phrase, Martha was distracted by her many tasks. How many of you can identify with that statement? I mean, I can, all of us can. But notice Jesus said, again, there's only one thing. And circle that phrase, only one thing. And that one thing is to follow Jesus with our whole heart. And notice the phrase, and I, and I think this is very important to see, and it goes hand in hand with what we're talking about here in terms of discipline. Mary is what? Chosen the best part. It, only, it all comes down to a choice that you make. Mary made a choice that Martha could have made, but chose not to make. So we're right back to living life thoughtfully, carefully, deliberately, intentionally, Looking to God, putting Him first place, bringing everything in harmony to Him. So what does God want my whole life? What will it take? Discipline. Look at the third question. Why should I do it? The cross. The cross. In other words, the cross of Christ should be my motivation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15 reads, He, Jesus, died for all, that those who live, that's you and me, should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is from the J.B. Phillips translation. I love this particular translation. I've used it often, and I love this particular passage in this translation. With eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give him your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable by him. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God uh, that the plan of God for you is good, meets all of his demands, and moves towards the goal of true maturity. 
Look at 2 Corinthians 6 verse 1. We beg you, please don't squander one bit of this, of this marvelous life God has given us. And then Mark 14, 4, some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? You know, you know the context. This was right before Jesus went to the cross. He's having dinner with the disciples. Jesus, uh, Mary brings this very expensive vial of uh, perfume in, breaks it, anoints Jesus. And the reason she does that, it's all clicked for Mary. She realized, I believe, before any of the disciples what was happening, that Jesus came to die, and he was about to go to the cross to rise again. He actually makes a statement, you know, she's anointed me prior to my burial. And when she did that, you remember the disciples' response. They got mad at Mary. Why this waste? That was so stupid. That was so silly, Mary. That could have been sold. That money could have been used to ministry to the poor. And Jesus looked at his men and said, would you all please be quiet and leave this woman alone? What she's done is, is a good thing. And this is going to be spoken of in memory of her wherever the gospel is preached throughout the whole world. In other words, what he was telling his men was, what you just witnessed that is what the gospel is meant to produce in the human heart. A heart that suddenly realizes in light of who I am and why I came to earth that there could be no gift ever too extravagant for me, no sacrifice too great for me. And you just live your life looking for more and more creative ways to love, to love Jesus, to honor Him. Because of who Jesus is and what he did, would not you admit he is worthy of your attention, worthy of your affections and your allegiance? It cost Jesus to die for me. And it is going to cost me to live for him. What does Jesus want from me in this new year, my whole life? What will it take? Discipline. Why should I do it? The cross. And then that last and final question what must I do? And the answer should be obvious at this point. Spend my life for God. Spend my life for God. And of course, the question is, how do I do that? Well, look at the next four bullet points in your notes. First, I must abandon all distractions. It's very, very obvious. We just talked about how Martha was so distracted, she even missed the fact that Jesus was right in her own home. Missing that opportunity to sit at his feet and learn from him. So I must abandon all distractions. Luke 9, 62. Anyone who lets himself be distracted from the work I plan for him is not fit for the kingdom of God. So there are two questions every follower of Christ must answer. Do I value Jesus and his work more than anything else in life? And then second, what am I willing to surrender? What am I willing to give? What am I willing to sacrifice in order to follow Jesus and to accomplish His work? See, reality is you only have so much time, you only have so much energy, and you only have so many resources. You cannot spend your life on God and at the same time try to acquire everything else in life. Jesus is worthy of all you are and all you possess, and because He is, He will accept nothing less than that. Look at the second bullet point. I must not only abandon all distractions, it's obvious I must adopt God's purpose. Acts 20, verse 24. But my life, this is the Apostle Paul, he says, my life is worth nothing to me unless 
I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. The work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Are you using your life to finish the work assigned to you by Jesus? And that is to tell others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Have you realized you're in the school you're in not just to get an education? You're in the job you're in not just to earn a living. You're in the home you're in not just to have a place to live. Your school, your job, your neighborhood, they are your mission field. That is the world in which you live. And that is the world that God is calling you to reach for Him. So I must abandon all distractions. I must adopt God's purpose in my life. And then third, I must appropriate God's power. I must appropriate God's power. I love 2 Chronicles 16.9. For the eyes of the Lord move, move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. In Hebrews 11 verse 34, we read concerning the great saints of old. Their weakness was turned into what? Strength. As they surrendered their weakness to God, God used their weakness as an opportunity to demonstrate His power and strength. You cannot, listen now, you cannot, we're about done, you cannot wallow in past mistakes and whine about weakness and follow Jesus at the same time. Concerning past sin, God says, you have the assurance of my forgiveness and let's get on with my plan for your life. Of course, that acknowledges you need to confess, you need to repent. Concerning weakness, God says, your weakness is my opportunity to demonstrate my power. And the next time you feel like God can't use you because of some past sin or because of some present liability, just remember these individuals who God used. Noah got drunk. Abraham and Sarah were too old. Isaac was a daydreamer. Jacob was a liar. Leah was ugly. Joseph was abused. Moses was a murderer and had a stuttering problem. Gideon was afraid. Samson had long hair. He was a womanizer. Probably had a number of tattoos as well. Rahab, Rahab was a prostitute. Jeremiah and Timothy were too young. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Elijah was depressed and suicidal. Jonah ran from God. Naomi was a widow. Job went bankrupt. John the Baptist ate bugs. Peter denied Christ. The disciples fell asleep while praying. Martha, as we saw, worried about everything. The Samaritan woman was divorced more than once. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was too religious. Timothy had an ulcer. Lazarus was dead. So no more excuses. God has an answer for both past sin and present weakness. Apply the cure, appropriate the power, and get on with following Jesus. Don't look back, look forward. Deal with the past by confession, repentance, trusting in God, but then move forward. And then look at that last bullet point as we conclude. I must anticipate God's reward. I must abandon all distractions. I must adopt God's purpose. I must appropriate God's power. And then I must anticipate God's reward. Look at those verses out of Matthew 16. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For the Son of Man is going to come. And then when, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. 
Listen, beloved, how you spend your time now will determine your reward in heaven later. Every minute you spend honoring God, every talent you use to serve God, every dollar you give to support God's work is an investment that will bring eternal dividends. Never forget the truth. The eternal reward will outweigh all earthly sacrifices. Now, also don't miss the fact that we're talking about this reward in most cases doesn't come till after death. You know, again, we've so messed up the Christian message, especially in the United States of America, where we think, you know, you follow Jesus, you're guaranteed of wealth, health, and prosperity in this life. He never promised that. He promised tribulation, persecution. There will be struggles. There'll be weakness. There'll, there'll be hardships. But as we're faithful, we learn the lessons God has for us. As we give those things to God as an opportunity for Him to demonstrate His power, it builds for us a heavenly reward. So what does God want in 2020? Just to uh, review my whole life. What will it take? Discipline. Why should I do it? The cross. What must I do? Spend my life for God. How? I must abandon all distractions, adopt God's purpose, appropriate God's power, anticipate God's reward. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I invite you in 2020, don't waste your life. Spend it on God. Bow with me in prayer. Let me just give you right now an opportunity to respond to the truth that you heard. You've heard that God wants your whole life. Right now, I invite you, as you're about to enter into 2020, that you would acknowledge that, yes, Jesus died for all. He died for me, and He died that I should no longer live for myself, but for Him who did die for me and rose again for me. And so as you consider the mercies of God, the love of God, as an intelligent act of worship, would you right now surrender your life to Him, the wholeness of your life, withholding nothing from Him? withholding no area of your life, submitting every single area of your life to Him, recognizing you're in a relationship with Him and He wants to be included in everything, excluded from nothing. And because He is Lord of the relationship, that you would surrender every area to be brought into harmony with God's Word. And then would you ask right now for God to give you grace to discipline your life? That He would give you the grace to be more careful in the way that you live? That you'd be more thoughtful, deliberate, and intentional each and every day in bringing your life to God, surrendering that life to God? knowing ultimately God is your coach. 
He desires to shape you, train you, equip you. Ask Him to give you grace not to resist His training, but to surrender to it, realizing the training He uses often is adversity, is sorrow, difficulty. Those are His tools to strengthen us spiritually, to take us deeper into Christ-likeness. So say, God, help me live a more disciplined life, as we saw in 1 Timothy 4, 7, that I would discipline myself for godliness. And then ask that God would open your eyes as never before in 2020. Ask, this, ask God to do this specific thing in 2020. Open my eyes as never before to see the glory of the cross, the cross of Christ. And the Christ who died on that cross for me. Ask God to bring you to that place that Mary was brought to. Where in seeing that, she suddenly realized no gift could ever be too extravagant, no sacrifice too great for Jesus. And she just lived the rest of her life looking for creative ways to express her love as she followed Him. And then ask God to strengthen you to spend your life for Him in 2020, to abandon um, the things that so easily distract you from Him, that you truly would adopt His purpose for your life. He would teach you to appropriate the power He's made available to you, and that you truly would anticipate His reward, knowing that God is not unjust. He will not forget any good work that you do any effort you make to discipline yourself for godliness. And then let me ask you to pray, God, give me the grace to live life not so much asking, is this permissible, but is this really profitable to me? Profitable to me in terms of my relationship and walk with you. Father, thank you for the uh, challenge uh, today. And again, Lord, we acknowledge it would be impossible for us to live any of this out apart from you being that power at work in us. We acknowledge that. But at the same time, we are in a relationship, and a relationship is reciprocal, and you do desire us to respond to your love, respond to your mercies through surrender, through putting our trust, our faith in you, through bringing everything to you to be brought into harmony with your word and with your character. So, Lord, uh, do that for our lives. Do that for our church. Everything that we shared here applies to the larger church family. And so we do pray in 2020 
that this church would not waste our talents, our gifts, resources, but they would be truly spent on God, that we just wouldn't go through a routine, uh, but we would really seek your face, your presence, your will, your mind, your heart, and live that out. For it's in Christ's name we do pray, amen.